0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: We are recording this episode on Halloween, on the 31st of October, mm-hmm. which is kind of fitting because we are talking about witches uh, and we are talking about the persecution of witches and the hammer of witches, the, the Malleus Maleficarum. Uh, we'll get into all that in a minute, but really the starting point here is, of course, the idea of the witch, the modern idea of the witch that emerges from past lies, truths, uh, atrocities, uh, all of which we're going to discuss in this episode. Uh, for your part, Julie, what, what do you think of when you hear the word witch?
0: Well, I always think about the archetype, right? Now I think mm-hmm. about a witch on a broom. I think about all the children's stories, which are rife with witches. Yeah. From Snow White to the Wizard of Oz, right, which is are so ingrained in our culture. And so on a personal level, I think as a female, it's always been of interest to me because I think at some sort of a subconscious level, when you are a female, you know that this is an archetype and that, you know, society has been saying for a long time, uh, you know, women have this sort of evil side to them. And that's really where the roots of, of this idea of witches comes from, which we'll discuss and we'll unpack this idea a little bit more later. But backing up and sort of looking at this topic, I think it's fascinating in the context of the last 400, yeah, 600 years of history to try to get a bead on psychologically where we're coming from, um, no matter what topic it is that we're, we're covering. There's always going to be a bit of flavoring from this idea of, of witches whether or not we know it. Yeah. It sounds like a ridiculous statement to say, but kind of look into your own life and look at uh, how stories or even news stories uh, or fiction is created and then look back to these tales of witches and you will see some of some of the roots of or the blueprint of how we go about our
1: lives. Like from a modern standpoint, with the, the gender issues involved in in the idea of the witch, Are are fascinating. Think of Hollywood, for instance. Countless beautiful younger actresses—they have all the starring female uh, roles. Then they get a little older. What do they inevitably play? They end up playing witches. I mean, it's almost a joke at this point. In fact, I've uh, heard—maybe it was Glenn Close, I want to say—who was joking about reaching the age where she suddenly was receiving a lot of roles for witches. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, which and like, what does that say about us? And, And certainly, the witch is an important character. In fiction. I, I always think to the witches in Macbeth as just one of the, the classic mm-hmm. examples of of evil witchery in modern fiction and uh, in our modern understanding of what a witch is. That's, obviously, that's a huge um, archetype to fall back on. But where do these archetypes arise from? Uh, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. And one thing we need to get, out, get clear right off the bat is the difference between witch and Wiccan. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, I mean, I tend to... I, I didn't think about this all that much because I tend to think of them in two distinct categories. Like Wiccans, to me, those are people I know. I know Wiccans mm-hmm. in real life. I um, I see them, you know, these are people who have a particular religious, um, spiritual belief system and more power to them. And then in the other category, I tend to lump the witches from Macbeth, um, historical witches and everything else.
0: Well, and and so we have Wiccans in in one pocket, and we're talking more about a nature-based system, right? Right. Um, And then we have witchcraft, which is entirely different. Witchcraft we're going to discuss more in terms of religion and how it was actually something that was created yes, uh, and and not something necessarily practiced by people uh, throughout the ages. That witchcraft is this largely... um, fictionalized account
1: yeah of, and it, of and it all boils to the surface around 1400 as we'll discuss now before that you obviously have stories of monstrous hags uh, and female female monsters that prey upon on uh, children and cause mayhem those are as old as as human history uh, and they exist in every society on earth
0: yeah every culture has yeah.
1: a, a sort of witch and and likewise cultures around the world have uh, there are always there's always going to be a history of females who are in important roles that may or may not have some sort of attributed, uh, spiritual or, or healing powers about them. That's also as old as time, but 1400, that's when we see the emergence, the real emergence of the idea of the evil witch, the demonic witch. And out of that time bubbles, all of this horrible, uh witchcraft persecution
0: right because at that point we uh or people went from looking at witches as a psychological embodiment of evil and wrongdoing and tried to then say that humans could actually physically embody this idea of evil okay so that gives license to do a lot of horrible things and when we talk about horrible things what we are talking about are people who were killed and tortured and from the 1400s to the 1700s an estimated half million people were executed for witchcraft were yes. accused and executed
1: mostly women
0: 80 percent of them yeah. were women
1: some men and then also children as young as like seven or eight were tried and executed on crimes as hard and unbelievable as sexual relations with a demon.
0: So what we're going to try to do is get to the bottom of, of the reason why this happened Um, try to take this long view and look back in history and figure out all the different elements that led up to this but I did want to mention that it's not just in past history. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Yeah,
1: exorcisms still take place around the world and uh, the magical thinking involved in all of this. We're going to look at a lot of the different sources of this witchcraft persecution. And so many of those sources, uh, be they cultural or economic, they're still around today. Yeah, So So, so think about that as we move forward. It
0: is absolutely relevant to today. And I just wanted to read a quick quote from Erica Jong in her book, uh, Witches. She says, clearly there are pagan beliefs still present in our modern world, and none of them inspires in us a lust for torturing and incinerating our neighbors here in the West is what she's talking about. But lest we make the mistake of assuming that our ancestors were less intelligent than we, a concept known as Erdumheit or primeval stupidity, let us think of all the things we would kill our neighbors for. The witch is not dead. She is merely hibernating. And witch hunting itself is hardly dead. Uh, It is merely waiting to be born again under a different name.
1: Exactly. So let's go back to 1400. Again, this is a, a key point in history where suddenly we see this idea of the witch Uh, rising to the surface of thought in Western Europe. It's interesting. If you look back before 1400, you had plenty of stories of individuals seeking advice from the devil or his demons, engaging in various magical spells and, and, and seeking demonic aid. Uh, but they were called necromancers. They were they were men. They were generally learned men, mm-hmm. uh, members of the clergy, or for all intents and purposes, scientists or wizards, if you will. They were they were the kind of people who owned a library, had access to quote unquote secret knowledge, mm-hmm. and could could really dive into. Uh, this sort of occultist uh, nonsense, uh, hardcore, and it was uh, it was generally considered that this was not something that women were up for. This was again, this was something that learned, powerful men did, mm-hmm. not uh, some crazy woman down the street with too many cats. Okay, it right. was it was a very sexist uh, idea because you know, every all things equal, why shouldn't women be able to reach out to the devil for aid? Right, prior to fourteen hundred, uh, when it came to seeking the advice of demons and entering packs. It, it was a man's world, for sure.
0: Yeah, and a necromancer would have been one of a triumvirate of dark arts here. So you'd have white magic, dark magic, and then you would have necromancy.
1: Yeah, white magic would be stuff like you go to your local healer, and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, he or she would have uh, some sort of shamanistic spells that or would help you. some sort
0: of you. salve to put on yeah. a wound. Yeah,
1: so it would be a mixture of things that were... You know, some that were probably actual folk remedies that worked, and mm-hmm. some things that were purely superstitious and magical thinking. Likewise, the dark magic would be your area of putting hexes on things or curses. Um, again, magical thinking, uh, and to maybe uh, and to a limited extent, maybe actual folk uh, anti remedies, if you will. Um, but for, but for the most part, magical thinking in that department as well, uh, aimed at harming people. And then you had necromancy, which was reaching out into the void. Uh, trying to contact the realms beyond death, trying to contact spirits and demons. And uh, and, and really, it, it brings my mind back to our previous episode on Ouija boards and Bloody Mary and these mm-hmm. various semi-occult parlor tricks that we played at our various sleepovers when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Like, those were all things that you would do with this kind of butterfly-in-your-stomach nervousness because you were reaching out to see if there was something out there, to see if you could touch this supernatural idea that we create in the world. And, uh, and necromancy was was basically that. And on some levels, a very learned example of that, where you would have books and books about how to reach out and touch something that exists only in your mind.
0: So to your point, this was male territory. Right. And so you would have scholars, you would have clergy, who would look to this and say, there's no way that a woman could be a witch as we know, as we have come to term a witch. There's no way that she could be... Uh, or have this sort of relationship with the devil and and uh, you know fly on broomsticks during the night. It's impossible. So they were actually that that was really sort of their position on right. that. Yeah. Women couldn't assume this this type of power.
1: And in the churches, um, I mean, certainly you would have stories of people doing magical things. And because because uh, again, magical thinking is as old as human history. Likewise, paranormal experience is a, a biological reality, as we've discussed when we've talked about UFO abductions and whatnot mm-hmm. in the past. Those experiences, no matter how we color them mm-hmm. with, uh, with our cultural pigments, um, things such as sleep paralysis are real and occur. And then our interpretation of them may involve anything from uh, an extraterrestrial to a wood nymph. Likewise, individuals with varying degrees of psychosis are going to have experiences that do not match up with everyone else's real-world experiences. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. But if you came to the clergy prior to 1400 and you said, hey, a uh, lady down the road, she's flying around at night and summoning goblins, they, the official church stance was, that is nonsense. That does not fly with church doctrine. Cut that stuff out.
0: Yeah, and actually there were some laws that were saying, hey, th- there are no witches, first of all. Second of all, do not persecute or kill witches. Okay, right. so this was generally the accepted idea.
1: Yeah, but then that begins to change. And that's what's so fascinating about this, because around 1400, not only does the idea of the witch, the demon-summoning witch, uh, arise in Europe, but it is pushed for, it is campaigned for, it is uh, the literature is published and distributed into the world, making the case and having the, the point is having to make the strong case because prior to 1400, it was not a generally accepted idea that women could women could do this. Were doing this. It was a reality that had to be created by men.
0: Well, you, also you have different religious, I guess you could say, sects of um, of Christianity mm-hmm. who are really trying to be the completely religious monopoly out there. And so right. we have talked, We and I actually talked about this before, but I think it's pretty well known that a lot of pagan sites uh, where their rituals occurred, you know, churches will, were built there. Right. Um, there's a lot of appropriation of pagans. Uh, You'd see that in saints and Catholicism. Yeah,
1: you see uh, you have saints, old heroes become saints. Old gods are wrapped up in demonology and become demons. Uh, the opposite of the, the various angels. Before 1400, this was, for a few hundred years, it was a craze of angelology and demonology, where you were just sort of populating the ranks of imagined uh, heavens and hells with different demons and angels.
0: So, I mean, the problem here is that um, not only are you trying to have a monopoly on religion here through Christianity, but um, you have have this uh, imaginary wicked religion that is basically created... By some people in Christianity to try to further define this this evil and work against it, um, and and feel as though these persecutions are justified by lines like in Exodus, this is twenty two eighteen. Thou shall not permit a sorcerer sorceress to live. Yeah. So there seems to be these justifications coming online, and in addition to that, if you look at previous to the fifteenth century, you have a lot of grappling with what is Christianity. And we'll talk more about that later, about trying to define it and order it and take all the different interpretations and all of the different writings and come up with some sort of cohesive, like, let's all fall in line behind this idea.
1: Yeah, and let's not add to it too much with a bunch of angels and demons, because that's an example there where the church had to finally say, whoa, guys, let's stop making up angels and demons. We have enough. We probably have too many. And certainly, you also see the the history of heresy and the existence of the Spanish Inquisition mm-hmm. um, in in the Catholic Church that was there to sort of edit the text to keep people from adding too much to it, from deviating what was perceived to be the core message of Christianity. So, so if
0: you were off message, then you were committing heresy, right? right. You were reigned in.
1: For instance, the Docetians—they were uh, a, a heresy um, that believed not only in the poverty of Christ, but that everyone should be poor, that the church should be poor, and that the rich should be violently opposed. Sort of a, a much bloodier version, say, of Occupy Wall Street, I guess you could say, with a certain harsh medieval flair. But that is an idea that it sprang up, and it had to be, in the church's eyes, squelched. But the heresies are all things where, for the most part, the heresies were real. It was somebody with an opinion or a view of Christianity mm-hmm. that uh, that deviated from what was seen as the core path. You might add some lies on top of that to press the case to actually eliminate them. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, they were going after actual beliefs.
0: Right. So, I mean, this is, I mean, if you look at the Inquisition and different aspects of the campaign, you're talking about from 1100 to 1600. Yeah. And because of re- religious or political beliefs, people are are being um, questioned and they're off message. Right. right. They're trying to rein them in.
1: But but where we really differentiate with witchcraft is, again, that this is stuff that was almost entirely made up. There were no actual witches, not like the, the ones that that the charges and the trials claimed existed.
0: Okay, so so in order to try to get a bead on how this sort of uh, this idea of witches started to get into the fabric of religion and also education, you have to understand that colleges and universities were largely under the thumb of religion until you know fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were a degree candidate in theology at the University of Paris in the 1400s, you would be expected to demonstrate your knowledge of demonology and angelology uh, by commenting publicly on the four books of sentences. Now, Mm -hmm. this was a standard university textbook used throughout the Middle Ages and into the early modern period. So already, you would have been steeped in this mythology of demons and angels. Right. Now, not only that, you are now training essentially... Um, An army of clergymen to then go out into villages, into societies all over Western Europe and to spread this word about demons and angels. So, you know, some people say, well, how could, you know, between the years of 1400 and 1480, there have been such a sea change in this idea of witches? And there was, uh, there was something that I read and I can't remember, uh, I apologize. I can't remember who it was who made this point, but he said, well, if you look at the 1960s and you look at the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and you look at the sea change between 1960s and present day, and you consider all the modes of communication we have that affected this change, um, it's, it's not inconceivable to say, like, look back at 1400 and realize that this was all bubbling up all of this sort of doctrine about witches and evil and demons and angels. Uh Um, So that when something like this publication of Malleus Maleficarium uh, arrives on the scene in 1486, that it's really running with the idea of demons and witches and creating a blueprint really for um, particularly Catholicism to follow through on what they think is essential to man's nature, in particular, women.
1: Yeah, Malleus Maleficarum is is a key text when you, when you look at the history of witchcraft persecution and just the idea of the witchcraft. This was published in 1496 again, uh, the work of Heinrich Kramer, Hammer of the Witches, and it is a guidebook to identifying witches, knowing what they're up to, and then persecuting them, or, well, um I guess prosecuting them uh, and executing them, if you want to use the aim of the book. Because Mm -hmm. the the book is making the the argument that all of this is real and pressing it really hard. There's a book that we used in part on this episode called Demon Lovers by Walter Stevens. And he's primarily concerned with the accusation that existed in, in all of these trials that witches were engaged in physical Sexual activity with demons—that's mm-hmm. his his. The whole book is an exploration of that. But he also does a great job of just really diving into to witchcrafts in general. But there's a whole section where he just takes apart uh, *Malleus Maleficarum* and and analyzes what Heinrich Kramer is doing in each part. Like, what mm-hmm. is he thinking as he's writing this? And he's having to make really strong cases to again press the idea that there are female witches out there, that there are women out there in the world that are actively. Engaging not only in pacts and, and spell work with the devil mm-hmm. and, and his demons, but in actual physical sexual contact with demons.
0: Right. And not only that, that they can shapeshift into animals. Right. They can ride the brooms through the air, the broomsticks. Um, they can cause um, spontaneous abortions um, just by the, the exterior touch. Right. That they affect the weather. They can create hailstorms.
1: Yeah, I mean, he is not he's not preaching to the converted here. This is not a book where it came out and was like, ah, oh, yeah, I picked up Hen- Heinrich's book because this is everything I believe in already. They would already have bought into some of it, certainly by, again, the Demonology and angel- angelology craze. And uh, post 1400, the witchcraft thing was already gaining steam. But 1486, this comes and this just pushes it even even farther
0: it was the authoritative text right um let me read a bit from it um and of course it came out in latin by the way and within 35 years there were 20 different editions mm-hmm. so it was a very popular book uh, among the learned this is a bit from it it says uh, witches offer to devils or otherwise kill the children that they do not otherwise devour they cause abortion kill infants in the mother's womb by a mere exterior touch It also said that midwives offered newborns to the devil at birth and uh, that a woman knows no moderation in goodness or vice. Devils do these things through the medium of women.
1: So, again, a lot of effort is is being made by men like Heinrich Kramer into making this argument, this very strong argument that women are engaging in witchcraft and engaging in physical contact with demons. Why? That's the, that's the big question, right? As we look back through the ages, why does this suddenly become such a pressing issue? Why are men wasting their lives and commit, and, and ultimately either committing or inspiring uh, horrible atrocities in the name of this ridiculous idea? And this is an important thing to, to mention, too. When we look back on witchcraft persecution, we have a habit to think, oh, well, that was the Middle Ages. People were stupid. Mm-hmm. People were crazy religious. And it was just a violent, horrible time. So yeah, of course, horrible, violent stuff like this is going to happen. But the, the more you look at, when you look at what people were writing in, the, in, in these days and before and after, and when you, when you start really analyzing the culture, you see this wasn't really the case. I mean, it was a different world, uh, for sure. But it was it was still an age in which you had reasoned men and women when you, when you had educated men who who were not only exposed to a bunch of theological uh, garbage about angels and demons, they were also uh, engaging in older philosophical texts. They were familiar with the works of Aristotle. Mm-hmm. They were in touch with individuals who were trying to understand how the observable world works, and not only what was happening on, happening in some unobservable spirit world. So bear that in mind as we move forward. So Why was this happening? It wasn't, it's not, so it's not just a case of men deciding, hey, I bet witches exist, let's make a case for it. What other energy is involved in this pursuit?
0: Well, again, I think part of it is Christianity trying to assert itself and fall in line under one doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so throughout history, you had different um, takes on women. And they're, they're part in society. But here is the dark view of women. Here's this idea that women are weak, and therefore they are subject to being vessels of of demons. Um, you also have this idea of women, and during this time um, coming into play, this idea that women aren't necessarily companions to, say, like their, their husbands, their counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more uh, just, you know, part of what your wealth is, your accumulation of wealth. And so, if you if you begin to objectify this person and, and sort of say, okay, there's some distance between me and this other person, and not look at them just as another human, then if you can see how the church sort of runs with this idea of, well, let's have the female as this embodiment of evil, and and not just like, you know, this. Hey, let's. This is our game plan for this century. Right. <laughs> but um, but you know, you have clergy clergymen who have been steeped again in this sort of mythology, this mysticism, because think about this, particularly in Catholicism, this is a religion that that really relies on mysticism. Yes. Okay, this idea um, that there's all these unseen forces, um, and if a woman can embody that, if she can be the lightning rod, then not only can she be sort of the scapegoat for for everything, um, she can really play to this idea of magical thinking, which is already going on, um, if you look at, say, the, uh, for lack of a better word, during this time, the lower classes, merchants, peasants, who are really attached to magical thinking and paganism. So if the church can take this and run with it, then they can exercise some sort of control over society.
1: And then there's also the idea that, uh, so the Christian world, the medieval world, and to a large extent the modern world, is, is highly matriarchal. But especially in this age, you have men at the top of it, you have a... A religion and governments that are filled with men, and you have a religion that has a male god. So the idea is that if you go back far enough in history, in fact, if you if you actually transition out of recorded history, mm-hmm. you find that the older religions are not strictly uh, male religions. They are not completely occupied by masculine gods that are that are occupied with with uh, with ideas of violence.
0: Right, and I don't want to go uh deeply into this, but when you say the old religion, there are some accounts of actually Jesus having um I guess you could say very different things to say than what is documented and that his relationship with Mary Magdalene was very different right and that there was more of a sort of equals um, in play there in terms of their their relationship.
1: Uh yeah, and then you also have traditions especially in medieval art where you see increasingly feminine uh portrayals of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. The I- the idea being there that people were connecting more with a a feminine godhead than they were with this uh this Old Testament bearded man who liked to destroy cities. Uh and that was something that again when the church was rooting out heresy and trying to to edit down what they actually were, this is one of the things that they went after and said guys let's Let's chill with the female Jesuses because you're 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 bordering on heresy here. Mm-hmm. The basic idea here is that in our past, we had more of a matriarchal view of the universe and of and of nature and of the the gods that ruled over nature, mm-hmm. and then over time, that is replaced with a patriarchal godhead. and throughout history, then the patriarchal side has to continually. Uh, reinforce the, the the walls, reinforce the barriers, and keep the matriarchal view from from working its way back into uh, in, into our thinking.
0: And who is the one human in Catholicism uh, who would be closest to God?
1: Well, that would be the the Son of God, right?
0: Well, uh, well or or Mary, living, yeah? living,
1: or, living. Oh, well, that would be the Pope,
0: right? Course. So, in 1484, you have a papal proclamation by Pope Innocent the who essentially says. All right, let's let's go after witches, and then this results in this continent-wide genocide yeah. of people.
1: Yeah. So m- misogyny is a is a definite uh, theory, and and certainly the, there's no denying misogyny plays a role in witchcraft persecution because it's mostly men convicting mostly women on entirely trumped up charges of supernatural activity. Uh, and uh, and people like Heinrich Kramer again are making a, a case in their books for the inherent evil of women. So, I mean, it's it's a no brainer, and it's it's horrible, but. Uh but it's it's undeniable that misogyny plays a huge role in all of this.
0: So, again, that's sort of where you see the sea change coming into play, where between 1400 and 1480, 1486, when Malleus Maleficarum comes on the scene, you see, in earnest, uh, Christianity sort of going after this idea of witchcraft and really developing the idea of witchcraft and yeah. adding to the mythology of it.
1: So, yeah, learned men are developing it. They're publishing it. Books like uh, like the, the Malleus Maleficarum are making its way out there, spreading the idea, and it's, uh, it's trickling down then to the, the lay people, the normal people uh, out there in their villages. And, uh, and, and this is important to note, too, because it's not, misogyny is one of the, the, uh, the, the powers in play here. But then also on a local level you're going to have people engaging in the same old crap that people always engage in. Petty disputes, spite, right. Right. mistrust of outsiders, mistrust of the crazy lady with all the cats, that kind of thing. So when the the environment for witchcraft persecution takes hold... Uh, you're going to see uh, some petty disputes that are going to be taken care of on a local level via the witchcraft trial system. You're going to see, um, you're going to see people on the local level buy into it, buy into the paranoia that the, the church and learned the members of society are passing down. So it it begins to distill through society.
0: So rather than looking at say some livestock that I lost in you know say 1492, yeah, um, as a product of let's say a parasite, I might look to my neighbor and say, ah, they put a spell on me.
1: Yeah, uh, they cursed me. We love to blame somebody for for something that happens. You know, be it if something bad happens to our animal, better that we can point the finger at somebody or something. And if that somebody and something happens to be that strange uh, guy who lives on the edge of town, or that weird-looking woman, and the devil, so be it, right? And likewise, children are dying, uh, all sorts of horrible things are happening. because right. there's because disease, it is, it and child disease. Birth. there's there's um, death in childbirth. Yeah. It's the Middle Ages, life is tough, just as life is tough today, and people are going to seek excuses, they're going to seek answers, and if they can find somebody to blame for something like this, all the better, Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so what you're starting to see is is a, a bit of a flavor of the social contract at that time. We talked about the social contract in, in various podcasts about yeah. how we all have signed on to it, whether or not we know it. So what we're seeing here is this script, really, for what's happening in life. And this script is being provided uh, usually by the local clergy. Yeah. Um so we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back we're going to talk about the script and how it is used in confessions and torture.
1: All right, we're back. So, we've we've discussed what was happening post 1400. Essentially this war on women begins. I mm-hmm. mean, that term is thrown around today and I'm not saying it's completely pointless to throw that term around today, but in the post 1400 world this is, there's a lot of truth to the idea. Well,
0: and that's not to say that this happening in the 1400s to the 1700s doesn't somehow inform our idea of what the war on women today is like. Yeah. It certainly
1: does. But an important part of this of course is that ultimately if you you can accuse people of witchcraft all day, but ultimately you you're, you're going to need them to confess. They have at least enough civility that they need them to confess. You need and, and it comes down to if you're going to make this horrible case and you're ultimately going to do something horrible, you need the the, the victim of this to buy in, or at least seem to buy in to the idea. You need some sort of acknowledgement that what you're doing is real.
0: Yeah, there are no Miranda rights here, no due process, no guilty and, or innocent until mm-hmm. proven otherwise. Um, you essentially have, you know, I- I- if you think about it, this, is called the witch craze. Yeah. And if you have fingered someone and said that you are a witch, then you certainly have an audience that is waiting for you to prove that.
1: Right. So you have witch theorists, you have people like Heinrich Kramer, who are coming up with all of the ideas of what should be happening and essentially what a witch a convicted witch, should be telling her interrogator. And then you have an interrogator whose job it is to go talk to the witch and get this story out of her. Now, I believe you have some of the questions that a witch would, I would do. normally be asked. Now, and so um, we're going to run through those, or at least some of them, real quick, just to give you a taste of what kind of charges were being uh, leveled and what kind of answers were being sought.
0: And these are 18 questions. I'm not going to go through all of them, obviously, but... Um now think of, t- try to take the position of the, the person who is accused of being a witch and having these questions applied to you over and over again. And what you began to see is that you are being told the script.
1: Right. And remember again, there are no witches. Nobody is doing the things that, that this, this question, like, put the fiction out of your mind.
0: Alright. So how long have you been a witch? Why did you become a witch? Why did you become a witch? And what happened on the occasion? What demon did you choose to be your lover? What was his name? What was the name of your master among the evil demons? What was the oath you were forced to render him? See how it, it mm-hmm. starts to get a little bit more involved and more more colored here. Um, how did you make this oath and what were its conditions? Uh, where did you consummate your union with your incubus? Okay, so it goes on and on to say, uh, what is the ointment with which you rub your broomstick made of? How are you able to fly through the air?
1: Yeah. On, on that- so I didn't do
0: all the questions, but... It talks about the Sabbath banquet, every little detail of what the church thinks is going on with yeah, witchcraft.
1: Because the ultimate story here is that the woman is engaging in sexual relations with a demon. Oftentimes, this will initially start with, uh, oh, there, I saw this handsome fella, and then we started fooling around. Fella. Fella, yeah. Because that's, an, that's another important thing. And then if it's a, a man being accused, it's a woman. But mm-hmm. but it's never a male demon and a male um, human engaging in sexual activity because the writers of this like the idea of uh, of homosexual relations between Mm -hmm. even a demon and a human was was just too much for them at the time and that's a whole separate issue but the the case again would be all right you you saw somebody attractive Mm -hmm. you started messing around with them and inevitably you end up noticing something unnatural about them generally they would have like the feet of a goose that was actually in a number of accounts right And the argument here is that, well, God would never completely pull one over, allow the demons to pull one over you completely. You'd have to have some sort of sign so that the faithful could back out of it. And then only your sinful nature would allow you to keep going with this, right? So you engage uh, in sexual relations with this demon. You eventually end up traveling via the air or some sort of unnatural steed to go to this uh, Sabbath where uh, all the other witches and their demons would gather and maybe the horned one himself would appear before you, but never would you be engaging in actual relationships with the devil because even though we're, we're, uh, we're giving a lot of power to women with these charges of witchcraft, you don't want to give them too much power. Again, the misogyny still has to be in play, and you don't want to imply that, yes, this, uh, this woman on the edge of town is important enough to actually um, mess around with the prince of darkness himself.
0: So it's not really her power, it's the Prince of Darkness. Right, right. It's
1: never her power because, heaven forbid, we give her too much power. Likewise, a lot of the things she's attributed with, for instance, making men's penises disappear, which was a big charge, uh, along with impotence and various other things of that nature. With the disappearance of the penis, it would be a charge of illusion. They're not actually powerful enough to manipulate physical reality uh, in this uh, instance, but they can create the illusion of it happening. So you're giving them tremendous attributing with them, T- tremendous power, mm-hmm. but it's not their power, and there are limits on it. And you can't blame God too much for this happening.
0: So, okay, you have the, the, the script. You have this idea of what witchcraft is. No doubt that has been bandied about in pubs and various villages and all sorts of talks about. Really, what we're talking about here is the boogeyman. So now you have...
1: Um, you have to have these questions answered.
0: You have to have these questions answered. And how do you force someone to answer these questions?
1: Unfortunately, uh, the reality is you put the screws to them. Literally. Literally, in most cases. Now, it's interesting. You look at some of the differences between which persecution in England and which persecution in mainland Europe. Mm-hmm. And in mainland Europe, they had full use of torture at their disposal. You name it, they could employ it. Now, you, you'll look around and on the Internet, and you can find any number of lists of horrendous torture devices. And certainly there there are a number of inventive, and then sometimes um, possibly fictitious items out there. Uh, When when you really come down to it, though, and if you really start looking at the history of torture, there are a number of very basic things that people have been doing to each other since time out of mind. They're not that inventive, they're not that creative, but they work. Mm -hmm. They're ways to inflict pain and ultimately make the, the tortured individual confess to anything you tell them to. Now, you start say, using a thumbscrew on somebody. They're going to scream. They're going to eventually give up on their principles unless they have some sort of, as we discussed in our uh, martyrs episode, some sort of extenuating circumstance going on with their body or their mind. Mm-hmm. They're, gonna, they're going to break. And so they're going to confess to anything. They'll confess to uh, running around with the devil himself, and that's why this script is provided, because you don't want them to confess to things that are disagreeable with your worldview, such as the idea that they are best buds with the demon, uh, with the head devil himself. Again, that doesn't jive with the... Uh, with the overriding misogyny of of the the claim. So you have to use these questions to draw unbelievable, untrue things out of the torture victim. But, uh, again, coming back to the U.K., they did not have full torture uh, available to them in the persecution of witches. Right. So they they the, actually
0: weren't able to burn witches right. in England.
1: Yeah. And in the persecution, they were not able to administer all these different modes of torture. So the stories that they were able to get out of the, the women in England were were different. They were, they were more tame. So while in mainland Europe, you'll find just ridiculous accounts of just all sorts of gory sexual details, uh, you won't see that as much in UK witches. You'll see charges of, well, she has a weird cat, that is a demonic familiar and she has a strange nipple on her body that she's probably milking it with. That kind of thing. While the the, the mainland European witch is flying off and engaging in a demonic orgy. That kind of thing. But again, you're resulting to your physical pain to get these confessions out of out of uh, many of these women.
0: Right. So you're talking about thumbtacks mm-hmm. versus, you know, something like the rack, being stretched on the rack. Right. Um, and the types of confessions that, that would come out of that situation. Um, I wanted to read a, a quick excerpt from a letter from accused witch Johannes Junius, burgomaster at Bamberg, who detailed his torture and his confession in a goodbye letter to his daughter, Veronica.
1: Yeah, to, to set this up. This was in uh, Bavaria, all right? And this was a case where this was no weird outsider in the edge of town. This was a successful and learned man. His wife had been executed on on witchcraft charges uh, previously. And uh, he was an outspoken critic of what was going on. And eventually, uh, surprise, surprise, the witchcraft allegations were leveled at him as well.
0: So he writes, Many hundred thousand good nights, dearly beloved daughter Veronica. Innocent, have I come into prison. Innocent, have I been tortured. Innocent, must I die. He goes on to talk about uh, some of some of the conversations he has with his um, torturer. And he says, that The executioner put the thumb screws on me, both hands bound together, so that the blood ran out at the nails and everywhere, so that for four weeks I could not use my hands, as you can see from the writing. Thereafter, they first stripped me, bound my hands behind me, and drew me up in this strapado. Then I thought heaven and earth were at an end. Eight times did they draw me up and let me fall again, so that I suffered terrible agony. And so I made my confession, but it was all a lie. Now follows, dear child, what I confessed in order to escape the greatest anguish and bitter torture, which it was impossible for me longer to bear. And he goes on and on to discuss it. So what we're talking about with the strapado is essentially tying the victim's arms behind his or her back and then hanging weights to the feet and hoisting that person into there over and over again until that person confessed. And obviously arms would come out of socket, so it's very rough on, on the physical body, and um, absolutely a ton of agony would result.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a horrible story, uh, that of uh, of poor Johannes. There's another segment from his uh, his letter where he mentions the executioner leading him back to his prison, all right, after after he's suffered and but before he's he's completely broken. And the executioner uh, says to him, says, "Sir, I beg you, for God's sake, confess something, whether it be true or not. Invent something, for you cannot endure the torture what will be put to you. And even if you bear it all, you will not escape. Not even if you were an earl." But one torture will follow another until you say you are a witch. Not before that, he said, will they let you go. As you may see by all the trials, for one is just like another. So, and, and that's that's key there too. And Walter Stevens in his book really points out that the idea that one trial is just like another. This is a factory industry here. There is a process with a desired result, with a desired confession that, uh, that has to be met to... To carry out this idea and to make this idea real in everyone's minds.
0: Well, and not you don't have just uh, Malleus Malficarum as a text. You also right. you have many other texts out there that are reinforcing this idea of witches and the hammer and having to to really use brute
1: force. Um, I mean, it's kind of like when you think today about anyone who has a, a fringe idea. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a belief in Bigfoot or some sort of crazy left or right wing conspiracy theory, they have a shelf of books devoted to that they have web sites they can go to maybe they even have uh, you know a TV channel they can they can turn into as well to have those ideas reinforced and again for the for the witch uh, theorists the worst witch persecutors and mm-hmm. just the average joe even there there's a lot of material out there to back up this worldview
0: that's right so you're exactly right so if you think about Bigfoot today and all the sort you- of – sort of information that's out there that can try to construct this story for you um with absolute verisimilitude, the same thing is going on. It's this confirmation bias, totally completely trying to select texts and ideas that line up with uh witchcraft. And I wanted to read this this quick excerpt from a text called Strix by Gianfresco uh Picodera Mirandola. And he says um uh, speaking of the hammer, he says, theologians will tell you that these things can be done by the, by the devil. And you can understand many examples from the book of Germans, Friar Heinrich and Friar Jacob, excellent theologians of the Dominican order called the hammer. And you can have this hammer if you want to use it against those who are hard-headed and do not want to believe the truth. So you can either bend them to believe what they are supposed to or else smash them into a hundred thousand pieces. Yeah. Again, this is this idea that is fueling all these atrocities. So if you look back at this time period, and it just seems too ghastly to be true, you have to remember, again, these texts are informing confirmation bias, but also cognitive dissonance is at play.
1: Yeah, this is really important. You mentioned uh, texts that people are coming back to. Because, again, they're... they're They're having to work really hard. And this was something that did not exist before 1400. Mm -hmm. They had to bring this ridiculous idea into the world that, again, would have been – I'm not just just talking as a modern observer. This would have been ridiculous pre-1400. But you have to enforce this idea and make a labored, intensive case for it being true. So they're turning to all of the the texts. They're finding support in the Bible. And obviously, there's some places there where you can find uh, some meat for the idea of female witches. But then they're turning inevitably to Aristotle. Aristotle was the most revered of the uh, the, the old philosophers among the learned in medieval times. Like this was this was the guy, right? His observations about life mm-hmm. and observable reality and speculations. On, uh, on things beyond that, they, they ring true. And this man was really esteemed for the way that he viewed the world. Well,
0: he was highly logical and very much into categorizing everything and making sense of the world and cataloging it.
1: Yeah. But it's, it, it's really difficult, if not impossible. I mean, really, it's impossible in, in several places to unify the works of Aristotle with Christian theology, all right? That didn't, didn't stop people from trying, but ultimately, with Aristotle, you find that, I mean, Aristotle did not believe in the immortality of the human soul. And of course, big problem, the, right? Yeah, a big pro- problem, because most of Christianity is about the fact that when we die, there is something else, that there is something immortal uh, in ourselves and in the world. So you see a certain amount of cognitive dissonance there, where someone is, is saying, hey, Aristotle's great. Oh, Christianity is the thing that defines my life. And in between, there's this burning question, these two things, why don't these two things go together? Mm -hmm. What is wrong? We've talked about cognitive dissonance before. It's it's the idea that you have two conflicting opinions going at it in your mind, and how do you deal with those? And again, the Middle Ages, don't think of it as a completely unenlightened time. It was an age in which you had clever individuals, educated individuals, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how the world works. And while there wasn't really a huge population of atheists in europe at the time there was still a lot of doubt there was a lot of trouble to believe because ultimately you're born into this story this religious story of how the world works and what it means and what your place is in it and there's not really an outside to that there's it's not like today like if if you're born into christianity you grow older and you can say well uh, i'm actually maybe not catholic anymore maybe i'm Protestant. All right, fine, you can make that transition. You Mm -hmm. can say, I don't really feel Protestant anymore. I feel like I want to explore Buddhism or Hinduism, or maybe I'm just completely agnostic. That's fine. There are groups for all of those. In other words, there's like a meeting you can go to for each of those. There's a support group. Mm -hmm. But within within Catholic Europe of of the time, there was Catholicism, and there was the outside, which was damnation. So it was harder to wrap your head around. You couldn't just choose the, the path that agreed with you the most. So a, a lot of people were struggling with belief. In fact, French historian uh, Lucien Febvre argued that the 16th century and the three to four preceding centuries were, quote, centuries that wanted to believe. Again, despite what we may uh, think and despite what they even wrote, uh, there might have been few pure-blooded atheists, but there was no shortage of apathy, agnosticism, and doubt.
0: So... You talked about cognitive dissonance, and I'm thinking about how um, you're going to react in one of two ways if you're met with cognitive dissonance. So if you have one idea about the world and then something comes along and it's the opposite of that, you're either going to have a sea change of opinion or you're going to somehow try to fit that in to your worldview, even though it doesn't really make sense. So I think about Thomas Aquinas in terms of this. Because he was very into Aristotle. And the reason why it was so important to Aquinas and the church is because Aristotle gave the kind of order that the church needed in order to, to really formalize what they were trying to put forth to the public, their doctrines. Right. And so, it, not only that, but, you know, there's a bit of appropriation of, of the esteem of Aristotle as well. So that's why you see this happening. That's why you see the convergence of these two different ideas and the need to get some sort of order in place so that you can formalize these ideas and and make it seem authoritative.
1: Yeah. And one of the ideas, I mean, the the key idea that Walter Stevens uh, pushes in Demon Lovers comes down to the idea that in the midst of this, uh, what is essentially a crisis of belief, you, you have an age where people are born into a religion that they're finding that they're doubting. that doesn't completely jive yet with the world, and it's not working the way it should. Uh, but there's no outside. There's no legitimate way to establish a different version of how the world works. They have to make this one work. So what can you do? What can you do to prove to yourself that there is a supernatural, that there, that there are angels and that there is a god, and ultimately that your own soul is immortal and not something that dies with your body?
0: So this version of Christianity needs witchcraft,
1: right? And I mean, it's uh, uh, and that, that's the actual words of John Wesley, founder of Methodism, in 1768. He argued that quote, giving up witchcraft is in effect the giving up of the Bible. Now that's po- that's after the witchcraft uh, craze finally puffs its last breath uh, for that period. But certainly, the argument Walter Stevens makes here is that essentially, the theorists, the witchcraft theorists, the Heinrich Kramer's of the time. They were kind of like not NASA scientists forming these ideas of how the world beyond our planet works, all right? And then the, the torturers, you can think of them as the astronauts, the individuals that are sent out to gain that proof. And how are you going to gain proof? How can you possibly gain proof of the supernatural, something that is by its very nature invisible and uh, is an article of faith? Well, you have these witches. And if you can somehow get a witch, especially lots and lots of witches, to testify, to confess that they have had physical, sexual relations with a demon, with a supernatural being, with a fallen angel then she is an expert witness she is providing expert testimony to the existence of the supernatural to the existence of God, to the immortality of the human soul and so in a, in a twisted just horrible, just heartbreaking way you have a half a million women die because a bunch of broken, renegade Christians doubt their own faith
0: Well, but also appeasing this idea of magical thinking. Right. Right? Sating people's thirst for this idea that right can be wronged and that the unexplained can be explained in this very simple way. Ah, she is a witch. Therefore, my livestock died.
1: Yeah. And at Um, the same time, you're distracting from political problems. You're distracting from poverty, from a host of issues that should be on the mind of the average person, but instead their mind is occupied with witchcraft.
0: Well, and and I think that what is truly evil about this is that these people, these clergymen, were staring in the faces of innocents as young as seven years old.
1: seven years old. Uh, As young as as seven-year-olds convicted of having sexual activity with a demon.
0: Mm -hmm. And then executed for it. And so, again, you get to this idea of cognitive dissonance. What do you do when you are met with that sort of innocence? You double down on your beliefs. Mm -hmm. And uh, particularly if you... Again, return to the line of Exodus, thou shall not permit a sorceress to live. And you feel as though you are the representative of God on earth carrying out God's wishes. Yeah. We're shaking our heads.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's horrible stuff. I mean, um, in Walter Stevens' book, he, he makes a, um, a very thorough case for the importance of that physical relationship between the witch and the demon mm-hmm. in virtually every witchcraft text that came out, including Malleus Maleficarum, where it's 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 not only making the argument that women are are having uh, physical relations with demons, but it's having to create the idea that they could. Because prior to to 1400, it was also largely thought that demons did not have physical bodies, that they were purely spirit. Mm -hmm. So they had to rewrite um, metaphysics to, to, to have that make sense. They had to figure out, well, what kind of body would a demon have? How would it come to have a body? Would it be composed of air? Would it be composed of some different form of flesh? How would this possibly happen because they needed it to happen so badly
0: well and cast doubt on women in every single enterprise of their life yeah. including midwifery in which then it you know a, a midwife would become suspect because it would think that you would think that if she were delivering your baby she would be offering up to the demon You know, so there's a lot of different things at play, Um, but I think what we find ourselves with today is this legacies of angels and demons, and this idea of women as witches um, that that continues just to flavor the the fabric of our society.
1: Yeah, because I mean, certainly the misogyny still exists, the magical thinking still exists Mm -hmm. uh, in not only much of the world but in everyday life. There's a certain amount of magical thinking. I don't care how. Steeped in uh, skepticism you are you're going to engage in a little bit of magical thinking at least when you see somebody draw a smiley face on the wall you're going to see a, a human face there I mean it, just on a very basic right. level we think magically but then just as the post 1400 world was an age of, of religious doubt and change and, and technological innovation I mean we continue to see that every, every day in our modern lives every age has to have, have the same crises that emerge uh, of uh, where we have to doubt what we've been taught and, and somehow come to terms with with what the world is showing us. And you see people that resist it, that, again, double down to that cognitive dissonance. So, I mean, just think to your own self. Think to your, the politics you see on the TV every day. To what depths would, would you fall? What hellish crimes would you commit in order to, to cling to a faith that deep down or to a, a, a political idea or what have you that you no longer really believe? What would you be, become in order to maintain that barrier between your worldview and the outside? You know, in order to defeat this demon of cognitive dissonance.
0: Yeah, and as Erica Jong says, uh, that witchcraft is it. It doesn't. Uh, it's not something that just went away. It just it sort of re-arises uh, from time period to time period under a different guise. Um, so I did want to point this out too. That if you are interested in in learning more about witchcraft, at least in modern times, um, you can check out an HBO documentary, "Saving Africa's Witches." It's a 2010 documentary, and it actually talks about the plight of young Nigerians branded as witches, some as young as three months old, mm-hmm. and some, some of these ideas that continue to pervade different cultures. Also, uh, be sure to check out Witches by Erica Jong. Um, it has some incredible illustrations. It is a wonderful history of witches, and Jong also has, has some great poems in there as well. Um,
1: the illustrations are wonderful as well. The, the one on the cover, like Julie brought it to my desk, and the, the cover's a little hippy-dippy looking because at first glance you only see this, this very sort of flowers and goodness pagan witch at the top, but then it becomes a more of a hag at the bottom. So when I first saw it, I'm like, oh, this is some sort of uh, – th- this is not really necessarily going to be in keeping with a lot of what we're talking about, but, but it's, it's really great. And the, the illustrations inside the book, uh, trust me, there are plenty of goat men and naked ladies <laughs> prancing around for, for any reader to find interesting. And the content is, is excellent. And again, Walter Stevens' Demon Lover is a great book. If you want a, a deeper dive into that whole uh, discussion of the importance of uh, physical contact between a witch and a demon, uh, it's a great book, but it's also kind of a it's kind of a heavy read, so I, I don't recommend that to everybody. Uh, but I would like to close out with a quote from Walter Stevens uh, in the book, where he's he's looking forward from uh, the medieval ages and looking to our own age. And again, talking about the energy that, that perpetrated and, and propped up, These atrocities and how that energy is still alive in society today. He says, The insecurities that produced experiments with witches are not a thing of the past. Both witchcraft theory and scholastic natural philosophy resemble the creation science of late 20th century Christian fundamentalists. All three attempt to make knowledge of the physical world conform to the most literal possible interpretation of the Bible. This is always an exercise in damage control. How much of the good book can be salvaged when experience collides with tradition and authority? So there you have it. If you have anything you would like to share, if you have uh, something something about witch culture today, about how we view the idea of a witch, I'm sure we have some Wiccan listeners out there, we would love to hear from you guys and gals. Let us know what you think about the legacy of the witch in human society. And if anyone has anything they'd like to share, uh, their thoughts on the, the history of witch persecution and what it meant, the various things that made these atrocities happen, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Tumblr. Our handle on both of those is stuff to blow your mind, and our Twitter name is blow the mind.
0: And you can also drop us a line at, blow at discovery.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah.